Hello, and welcome to the Wind Power Podcast. I'm Ian Griggs, Deputy Editor of Wind Power Monthly, and today I'm lucky to be joined by Elizabeth Klein, the new Director of the US Bureau of Ocean Energy Management. BOEM, as it's also known, is responsible for offshore renewable energy development in US federal waters and sits within the Department of the Interior. Elizabeth took up her role as Director of BOEM in January but she's been a member of President Biden's administration since it took office in 2021, when she served as senior counselor to US Secretary of the Interior, Deb Haaland. She's also previously served in the Bill Clinton and Barack Obama administrations and was a key architect of the Obama administration's work to create a new offshore wind industry and leasing program. Welcome to the Wind Power Podcast. It's great to have you here. Well, hello. Thank you so much for having me. I guess I want to kick off by asking you, why did you choose to take this role? What is it that appeals to you about it? It's hard to name just one thing, but I have a passion for public service and tackling hard issues. Certainly, there are those (laughs) at the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management. (laughs) And I come to these issues with a sense that we really have an opportunity to make a difference. We have an obligation as the federal government to tackle the climate crisis that's before us. And the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management is really uniquely positioned to be able to do something as our country is transitioning to more sustainable and cleaner energy sources. So given my experience over the years, I really felt like I had something to contribute and could be helpful. Is that a personal thing for you, climate change? Do you feel particularly strongly about that? And this is an opportunity within public service to actually do something about that? During my time here at the Department of the Interior, during this administration, during the Obama administration, certainly even during the Clinton administration, we are visited from people all across the country, all across the world. We have been out to communities who experience the real impacts associated with climate change. During the Obama administration, I had the opportunity to visit with folks from a small community called Shishmaref, Alaska, and are facing really difficult decisions about relocating their school because of coastal erosion. And so climate crisis is really here and is having real impacts on real people. And so it is something that has informed my career. I can imagine that. In what ways do you think BOEM will be different under your leadership? First and foremost, my role really is to implement the president's agenda. He sets the tone. I do come with some experience. I was here in the Obama administration when we were really getting the program off the ground. And so have some perspective on the program's history and how it's developed over the course of the past decade or so. And I bring to this job, not just my knowledge and perspective, but really a a sense of wanting to help be useful and see how much progress we can make during our time here. Talking about your previous experience, how will your previous roles under US Secretary of the Interior, Deb Haaland, working on climate change resilience and the State Energy and Environmental Impact Center at NYU School of Law, how will they inform your approach at BOEM? Having the opportunity to work closely with Secretary Haaland uh, was really a privilege and an honor. And her perspective on these issues is to focus on What's the human impact of what we do every day at the Department of the Interior? To remember that 
the actions that we take and the decisions we make can affect people in a real and personal way. That um, certainly is something I think about every day. She cares deeply about the climate crisis, how that's affecting communities all across the country, and agrees that you know we really do have an obligation to do something about it. And looking back over my career, I mean, certainly the work at the State Impact Center helped me to get a perspective on how states approach energy and environmental issues, the challenges that they face. A lot of states have historically been under capacities um, in terms of their ability to address these big issues like climate change. I also was in private practice for a short period of time and was working on large infrastructure projects and so also understand what it's like to go through the permitting process. Just out of curiosity, what were these large infrastructure projects that you just mentioned that you worked on? Worked on a number of large transmission projects, which uh, can be amongst the most challenging, particularly in the United States, where they might cross multiple states and or pieces of land with different jurisdiction and any number of issues, environmental issues, community impact issues. So got a really good lesson in how complicated the process can be, but also, you know, sort of the things that can be done to make it move efficiently and effectively. I mean, yeah, so these are highly relevant infrastructure projects, really, if you're talking about grids and transmission. What's President Biden like to work for and how is he different compared with your earlier tenures serving Bill Clinton and Barack Obama? Well, President Biden is from Delaware and so is my family. And Delaware is a small place. <laughs> so certainly my parents were very excited and you know, <laughs> like to tell all the stories about how we might be connected in some way. <laughs> One of the biggest differences, I would say, uh, is just the circumstances under which we came into office. Now that we're two years into it, it might be easy to, to forget that we really came into office at a time of unprecedented challenges global pandemic and economic devastation in certain parts of the economy, serious supply chain issues that are with us still today. Um, And, you know, the impact that that took on the workforce, it was no small thing. Um, And I think we really are still in a position of building back up the, the federal agency infrastructure, given the experiences that led to President Biden coming into office. So I, that's one of the things that is most striking to me. But all of you know the administrations I've served in, one of the things that is consistent throughout is just there's an amazing team here at the Department of the Interior. We have really diligent, smart, effective career employees who have dedicated their lives to public service. President Biden's flagship Inflation Reduction Act, signed last summer, extends the wind production tax credits system by 10 years. It introduces manufacturing tax credits to support the wind industry supply chain. It's worth up to $370 billion in funding for climate change and clean energy initiatives. What's your forecast of how the Inflation Reduction Act will transform the U.S. wind industry over the coming 10 years? It's a great question. The Inflation Reduction Act, plus the bipartisan infrastructure law, I would just generally say are really remarkable pieces of legislation that the president was able to get across the finish line. 
with respect to the IRA, certainly and offshore wind, there are a number of key pieces in that bill that will help this industry move forward in a really meaningful way. I mean, we've talked about the supply chain challenges that exist for really somewhat obvious reasons that there was the, a, a global pandemic that really affected economic conditions, factories shut down and worker shortages. I think the IRA really does provide a tremendous opportunity and we're grateful that we have the resources in it. You mentioned the tax credits, which are, of course, important to this industry in the U.S. There's a fair amount of risk associated with these big projects. And so the extent to which the federal government can be a support for that effort is really important for the long-term success of the industry in the U.S. I talked a little bit about permitting. And, you know, there are resources provided in the IRA to agencies as they move through the permitting process. The whole effort is really exciting and historic in a number of ways. Bipartisan infrastructure law and the Inflation Reduction Act are two of the most significant climate change related pieces of legislation that we've ever seen in this country. You mentioned permitting. Do you expect that as a result of the IRA, that this system is going to speed up this process and people are going to actually be able to get projects built a lot faster than they were before? I think speed is one aspect of the overall process. These are large infrastructure projects and we have communities who have legitimate concerns about the impacts that might result from these projects. And so the capacity needed at agencies to make sure that they are following the law, that they are being really thoughtful in the engagement with these communities, that we are taking in the concerns and the feedback about sites that seem well suited for this type of development and maybe some sites that are less well suited. The capacity challenges are real in these federal government agencies. When you look over the course of the past decade or so, we have just at the Department of Interior, a decrease in our overall employee workforce. One of the biggest obstacles, I think, in the permitting process generally is when you have multiple agencies and entities involved, ensuring that folks have the ability to do that work, they have the ability to communicate with other federal agencies and aren't so overly stretched, um, right, that there just aren't enough hours in the day. That really does actually sound like a very similar picture in the US to the EU for permitting. You can change the law and that's that's great. Uh, and that helps. We don't actually have enough people to shepherd these processes all the way through quickly enough. How does Boehm select potential sites for offshore wind auctions? And does it prepare for or indeed anticipate conflict with other sea users, such as, for example, fishermen and marine conservationists? The focus is on how can we find those sites that might minimize the amount of conflict. We know that we're never going to zero out conflict. Our oceans are places where there are really important resources, marine mammals, seafloor itself uh, is habitat. We have a number of ocean users that are in these spaces and certainly 
engaged in very legitimate and important activities themselves. And so the idea is, how can we find sites that might pose the least amount of conflict or risk? And BOEM, starting at a high level, engaging in the type of spatial planning you might do to look at where are the vessel route traffics? Where are the important uh, fishermen spots? Where are the key habitat areas for certain marine mammals? Where are the migratory paths? And can we sketch out areas that seem to pose the least amount of conflict or risk, also have good wind resources? We, we started out in shallower waters, given where the industry was at the time, uh, in terms of fixed bottom turbines. And that's how we sketched out initial leasing areas. And then we went through a process to make sure that we are getting feedback from other federal agencies. It's really a partnership with states since they play a key role in the provision of electricity. Um, and so want to make sure that the build out of these projects is consistent with their state goals. And then, you know, making sure that we're working with tribes and other ocean users, other stakeholders, you know, once we hold the lease sale and leaseholders start to do work in the areas, figuring out is there additional uh, work that can be done to minimize conflicts and risks to other uses. Which is Bowen, consider existing port infrastructure when it comes to selecting uh, potential sites? Or do you think like build it and they will come, if you see what I mean? (laughs) It might be a mix of both. You know, we started this effort on the East Coast and there is a lot of existing port infrastructure in areas of New England, the Mid-Atlantic, and even down into the South. It is a key place where there's an opportunity if those ports were perhaps experiencing any sort of downturn in their use? Are they located in communities that have their own economic development challenges? And so where are the places that could really benefit onshore from this type of development? I just met with a group last week from California, the port operators up and down the West Coast in California, who are thinking about just these issues um, and working through really complicated logistics of who can accommodate, right, the size of these turbines? I think that the port economic development opportunities are really an exciting part of this whole endeavor. Um, and we're fortunate to have some really good relationships with the states and with the entities that operate these places um, to talk about how we can use this as an opportunity for economic development, good paying jobs, and a source of real excitement for the communities. That is the exciting thing about the wind industry, isn't it? There's a whole economic piece to this as well, in which it actively benefits the host country in the wind supply chain, as you say, creating all these high-value, well-paid jobs across the whole supply chain. Yeah, and it's not just coastal economic opportunity. There are really you know, jobs and opportunities that exist inland as well, right? And- manufacturing the vessels that are needed for this work. It is exciting and, you know, we're hopeful that we can do it in a thoughtful way that brings jobs and economic opportunity to those communities that need it the most. So now let's talk about a couple of specific auctions that Boehm held last year. So the New York Bite auctions, first of all, raised 
an incredible $4.4 billion. But they were criticized by some developers for basing winning bids on price alone, potentially driving up the price of renewable energy for consumers and businesses. What would be your reaction to that criticism? First and foremost, these are sophisticated developers who made the decision to factor in these costs into how they're going to compete. And that was what they were willing to pay into the U.S. market. I'd also say that New York and New Jersey, they have very robust procurement processes designed to ensure competition and make sure that they're maintaining reasonable prices for their ratepayers, which is, again, back to the federal state partnerships involved here. A lot of the states that we are working with share the interest in facilitating a transition to cleaner sources of energy and making sure that we're doing it in a thoughtful way that's not driving up costs to ratepayers. And the costs of the of the technology have dropped quite a bit, which is, you know, certainly an indication in the US that this development can be affordable. Coming on to a second big auction which Boeing held last year, California's offshore wind tender. So at the end of last year, some predicted that the winning bids could total up to 2.5 billion dollars but that figure turned out to be optimistic to put it mildly and instead bids totaled a mere 757 million dollars which is still a significant amount of money why do you think the california offshore wind tender underperformed the new york bite auction or did it underperform at all Honestly, for me, it's hard to compare the two in that way. Some obvious factors that New York and New Jersey and the energy markets there and the type of offshore wind contemplated are just different than what was contemplated in the California offshore wind energy auction. So we do view the California auction as a success. It was you know, a significant milestone in achieving our overall offshore wind goals. We've set a a goal of 15 gigawatts of floating offshore wind by 2035. Obviously, the floating wind technology is just not in the same place as fixed bottom turbines at this point. And so we frequently point to the experience of other countries as successfully deploying fixed bottom offshore wind developments all across the world. And so There's obviously not as much to point to with floating wind. Um, I think it's really exciting for a number of reasons, particularly given the kind of, you know, offshore topography of the U.S. and our coastlines and the places that floating wind could serve in a way that fixed bottom can't. Um, But it's hard for me to compare those two auctions in that way. So we're we're kind of comparing apples with pears here. It's not necessarily the, a straight or fair comparison, basically. Exactly. They uh, were in different places in terms of their offtake agreements as well. And apples to pears, I like that. Peculiarly English analogy for you there. So do you think the auction system as it stands is fair to wind developers? We get a lot of feedback here at the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management. And I have not heard the suggestion (laughs) that the process is unfair. (laughs) We set out to create a process that would be as fair as possible, would promote the safe and expeditious development of wind resources on the Outer Continental Shelf. And I think we're endeavoring to be as transparent as possible about what our strategy is moving forward 
in the next couple of years, we announced an offshore wind leasing plan through 2025 to try and promote that certainty and transparency in our process. It's certainly a complicated process and it is not without risk, but I think so far the experience has shown that developers have been able to navigate it successfully and are moving forward with real project proposals, which is exciting for all of us. Do you think any reforms to the process will take place under your watch? We still feel very new about a lot of this, but the reality is that there has been 10 years or so of experience now uh, in building the program and understanding things that seem to work and things that could be improved. And so we actually just recently released a proposed renewable energy modernization rule that governs this clean energy development on the outer continental shelf. And that makes a number of proposed changes to how we operate this program, trying to streamline what might be overly complex processes. We know that some of the auction formats and bidding systems that are described in our existing rules might be difficult to understand or could benefit from more flexibility. That rule is out on the street right now, and we're looking forward to the feedback around that. What kind of timescale would you anticipate for these proposals to streamline, as you say, the process in places? The comment period is open right now. I think it closes at the end of this month. And then we'll take the feedback that we receive, look at all the comments, use that to make any changes to the draft or improvements, refinements, et cetera. And we're really hopeful that we can get a final rule issued by the end of this year, certainly. You know, as we move through this process, have also put out some guidance on key issues, right, that have come up in the processes, including how can we make sure that we are supporting the minimization or mitigation uh, to any impacts to fishing communities, for instance. We also put out some guidance that was aimed at helping folks as they move through the permitting process. What is the kind of information that the agencies really need and expect in order to do sufficient environmental reviews? We're always looking for ways to improve the process and find those opportunities to make it easier on everyone, but not discounting our very important obligations under environmental statutes. There's been a spate of whale deaths off the northeast coast of the U.S. recently. And although the U.S. National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration has said there's no evidence at all to link them with preparations for new offshore wind farms, some have been quick to leverage this development to galvanize opposition to wind power. And I wonder... How does BOEM go about countering both misinformation and disinformation about wind power? I think there have been whole reams written on the potential increase in misinformation on all sorts of issues in the U.S. and probably around the world. So one of the things I would say on the whale strandings that have been occurring, which are really concerning on a number of levels, just for anyone who cares about marine mammals and these amazing creatures who move up and down the Atlantic coastline, as NOAA has confirmed, this is a what they refer to as an unusual mortality event that's been occurring for the past six or seven years. And there really is no evidence at this point linking anything that offshore wind 
operators are doing right now in terms of their survey work or any other work that would account for the level of mortality that has been experienced with some of these species. We know that vessel strikes and fishing gear entanglements are a real problem for whale species. And certainly changes in water temperature are having impacts on how species like whales move and where their prey is available. And so certainly there's a climate change element to all of this. We're never going to completely counter misinformation. And we don't want to suggest that there are folks who don't have very legitimate concerns and worries. Those concerns are valid and we want to take that information and make sure that we're being as thoughtful as possible in terms of the review of potential projects and where the turbines will be sited and what impacts that might have and ensuring that we have measures in place for all of the vessels, for instance, that are moving through areas where whales might be to ensure that we can minimize the risk to the greatest extent possible. And really what we're trying to do is be as transparent and accessible as possible about what we no. That's a really detailed answer. I just wonder, are facts and transparency enough to counter misinformation and indeed outright disinformation about the work that you do? One of the most important things we can do is to demonstrate success. Once we see these projects working, that it is going to go a long way to assuring folks that this type of development can coexist with other ocean uses and not have the impacts that some folks are as worried about as they are. Staying with public opinion, you've worked in or around the wind industry for more than a decade. In that time, how has public opinion changed towards wind power and renewables more generally in the United States? Is the need for more clean power no longer considered a political message, in your view? I think there are are lots of folks that share the view that this type of development presents a great opportunity for economic development in the U.S. And from a financial perspective, we can make offshore wind a source of energy that is not going to unduly burden ratepayers. You know, as with any issue, sometimes the loudest are those on opposite ends of a spectrum. Here at BOEM, we remain focused on the job at hand, trying to be as transparent as possible with the data we have. I want to ask you one last question, Liz, if I may, and that's to talk a bit about the level of diversity, or perhaps one could say lack thereof, in the wind industry. Now, according to a 2020 report by the International Renewable Energy Agency, IRENA, women represent just over 20% of the global wind workforce and less than 10% of its senior management. There's no reliable data on how well people from ethnic minorities represented. How do you think the wind industry should tackle its lack of diversity and specifically the underrepresentation of women and people from ethnic minorities in senior roles? The offshore wind industry is, shares this problem with a number of other industries in the U.S. We know that a diversity of voices and life experiences makes us all stronger, right? That effort to improve and increase diversity is really important to us as an agency. It's something that's important to the secretary and to the president. 
Uh, when we meet with developers, when we talk to states, we are seeking out the ways that we can support those efforts, right? So how do we recruit from and train local, minority, tribal, and underserved communities, right? Providing those communities the opportunities to have an entryway into this industry is really important. And we have this amazing opportunity that we're at the starting line here. It's not about correcting decades and decades of work and sort of the way that these things build up over the years, right? We have an opportunity to really do this right from the beginning. And so we have states like New York and New Jersey who are incorporating incentives into their solicitations for developers that contract with women and minority-owned businesses. So in the U.S. at least, underrepresentation isn't yet entrenched. In the offshore wind industry, right? Yeah. Where are the places that we can push for workforce training in underserved communities? Where are the places where we can make sure that we're bringing benefits back to tribal communities that are on our coastlines? Those sorts of opportunities exist. And I think a lot of developers have expressed a real interest in making sure that that happens. Consider yourself a potential role model in this respect? I'm just here doing a job. So (laughs) I don't think a lot about whether I'm a role model. Those are all my questions. Um, Elizabeth Klein, Director of the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management. Thank you very much indeed for speaking to me. Thank you. Sure. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Wind Power Podcast. We'll be back soon with another episode to explore the issues which are driving the wind industry. In the meantime, for the latest news, expert opinion and analysis, visit windpowermonthly.co.uk for daily updates or to sign up for one of our specialist bulletins, delivered straight to your inbox.